I've got a uh, question for you, just a little scenario. Imagine this happens. You find a wallet out on the oak lawn. You open it, it belongs to one of your mates, one of your friends. It's got some money in it. You lift the money, put it in your pocket, dump the wallet in a bin somewhere and merrily carry on with life. Then a bit later you realise what you've done is not so good. What would you do to put things right? I would just talk to the person next to you, uh, see what you come up with, see what strategy you would have to try and put right what you've done wrong. Okay, I hope you've come up with something effective. Now, I don't know whether you realise that. I, I could get you to all give your answers, but I won't do that. I don't know whether you realise that, but that scenario is very much like what Lance just read to us from Leviticus chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, have a look at Leviticus chapter 6. It talks about finding, this is verse 3, lost property and lie about it or swear falsely about uh, any such sin that people may commit. When they sin uh, in any of these ways and realise their guilt, verse 4, They must return what they've stolen or taken by extortion, what's been entrusted to them or the lost property they found, or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it to the owner on that day. So you give the wallet back, well, you go and get it out of the bin, you put the money back in, you give it back, you add 20 bucks. Is that enough? Does that put it right? Well, not according to Leviticus. Verse 6, as a penalty... They must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they'll be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. They're to sacrifice an animal as well. They're to go home and, well, in your case, it might be find your pet poodle and kill it. Now, can I ask, as you talk together about what to do about this wallet and the money, did any of you think that that's what you needed to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, the, the, the earlier stuff about finding the wallet, giving it back, I, I presume that was fairly common. But did any of you think you needed to make a sacrifice to God because of what you've done? Now, some of you may not have thought that because you know about Jesus. We'll come back to that uh, towards the end. But my guess is that it just doesn't cross our mind because that's not how we think about what we do wrong. What's it got to do with God? And the book of Leviticus says everything. It has everything to, or better, God has something to do with that. Which shows that my world and how I think and the world of Leviticus, the world that God created, are poles apart. And that's what we want to explore today, at least to some extent, one aspect of it. Last week, Matt helped us to enter the world of Leviticus, a world created entirely by God, the God of Israel. We saw that Leviticus was this instruction manual to the people of Israel, the people that God had rescued out of slavery in Egypt, made them his own through that dramatic, powerful act, brought them to Mount Sinai where he spoke to them, gave him his covenant. They signed on and said, we'll be your people. That is, they had the privilege of being the the special people of the creator of the universe. 
God says, I want to dwell with you in your midst. But that's not an easy thing. They would have God there in the middle of their camp, day after day, week after week. And that's not an easy thing. It makes it requires changes. So just imagine that Ed Sheeran decided he was going to move into your street, into the house next to you. You'd make some changes, wouldn't you? You'd probably mow the lawn, maybe paint the fence. Because it's Ed Sheeran in your neighbourhood. Well, this was God in their neighbourhood. How do you have God live with you? Today we're looking at this first section or some bits of the first section, part one, the offerings and sacrifices. Because that's what it takes. Now, let's think a bit further. Last week, Matt introduced us to these ideas that flow all the way through Leviticus, that there are two states, holy and common. There are two conditions, clean and unclean. And if you ask where is God in this situation, God is only in the holy part. That's what God is like. He's holy, he's different, he's set apart. And the holy and the profane, the unclean, can never mix. They're they're separate. They can never be together. And the aim for Israel was to live above that line. But they never did and never could. And we don't either. Because of our immoral actions that defile us, because of our constant uncleanness, the contagion that was throughout the camp of Israel. And so Leviticus teaches a system for humans who are not holy and who cannot approach God. It teaches us that those things are true. So Matt, last week, showed us that these are the two things that the whole of Leviticus is built on, the two truths. Humans are not holy, and therefore humans cannot approach God who is holy. There's actually an example of this in Leviticus chapter 10. If you've got a Bible or just watch the screen, in Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron, who's the high priest, he's the most holy Israelite there is. Two sons of his, Nabab, Nadab and Abihu, they took some censers and put some fire in them and added incense. They offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to the Lord's command. So what happened? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That's, well, radical, isn't it? (laughs) That's drastic action that God takes. Moses then says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. He's proved holy by consuming anything unholy that comes close to him, comes into his presence. It's frightening and sobering, isn't it? If we think that anybody can just approach God in any way they want, when they want, this says, think again. Now, I think it's our assumption that we don't need to think again about that. It's easy to imagine that if I wanted to approach God, if I decided to believe in him and relate to him, hang out with him, he'd actually be pretty chuffed to have me there. If I knocked on his door, he'd open it wide with a smile on his dial ready to welcome me, as if any flaws I've got are irrelevant to God. Well, that's what Nadab and Ehu thought, and they were proved drastically, fatally, disastrously wrong. Why would you think that, that God would be so pleased? 
There's more than a touch of arrogance to that thought, isn't there? And Leviticus teaches that it's impossible for us to approach a holy God. It's an explosive mixture like potassium and water or like having Putin and Zelensky come for dinner. It's just not going to work. It's impossible for the unclean to have contact with the holy. It's sort of as it's impossible as flying to the sun in your helicopter if you've got one. It's as impossible as getting pregnant while just holding hands. Because uncleanness makes you profane. Now, those categories of profane, unclean, clean, and holy, they're foreign categories to us, they're foreign to our culture. But it's God's culture. He created it. So let him instruct us about his culture. We've seen that it's impossible for people to dwell with a holy God, for a holy God to dwell with unholy people. Today we're going to see how God makes it possible. Not by God becoming unclean and profane, but by making us holy. That's what we're looking at today. And the how is... By sacrifice. Leviticus describes all these different sacrifices that the people of Israel to do, burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, all to do with sin, uncleanness, and atonement. Now, it's a little bit strange, but as, as you read through these passages, there isn't much explanation of how it actually works. Because when you see it happen, when you do it, the very act of it tells you how it happens and how it works. It's sort of like the the chemistry demonstrator who comes into the lab and puts on the gloves and puts on the goggles and takes all the stuff to the fume, uh, the fume hood. And, and they don't explain it. You, you just know why they're doing it, don't you, if you're doing chemistry? Who's doing chemistry? Come on, there's somebody doing chemistry, isn't there? You ever seen it? Well, this is like that. As you do it, you're meant to understand it. So let's see what they did. These sacrifices, the bird, the sin, the guilt offerings are all very similar. There's some variations on who it is, whether it's the priests or the whole nation or individuals. Some variation about seriousness. Is it unintentional or intentional sin? But the solid core of it all is the way of cleansing guilt and sin, of making unclean things clean, is by sacrifice, by offering. If you're aware, if an Israelite was aware that they'd sinned, then the relationship with God is restored through sacrifice. It always involves slaughtering of animals. It might be a young bull for a priest. It might be a male goat for a leader of the community. It might be a male sheep or a female sheep for most of the others. They all had to be without defect. That is, you had to bring the best, not something that you're going to throw on the rubbish sheep anyway. And you bring it to God, to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle. And when you get it there, you place your hands on its head. You then slaughter it. You get a knife out, you cut its throat and kill it. It has to die. And then the priest collects the blood that's spurting out everywhere because you've garroted it and, and they sprinkle some on the horns of one altar and they splash the rest at the base of another altar. The carcass is then cut up in different ways and it's burned, some inside the tent, some it's burned outside of the camp, removed and burnt out there. And we're told repeatedly that when that happens, when the animal dies, its carcass is burned, its blood is splashed, atonement and forgiveness result. Chapter 4, verse 20, 
In this way, the priest will make atonement for the community and they will be forgiven. Verse 26, in this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin and he be forgiven. Or chapter 6, verse 7, in this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord. They'll be forgiven of any of the things they did that made them guilty. That is, this process, this sacrifice offering, atones for sin. Sin and evil need putting right. That the parties need to be made one again, atonement brought back, reconciled to each other. Without that happening, there's a dislocation, a terrible tragedy in the world. And I think we sort of know that, don't we? When we do something wrong, we know that it needs to be put right somehow. You take the money from the wallet, you, you feel bad about it, and you can't just go on living as if it hasn't happened. It's almost like the universe is out of kilter, it's out of balance, because something has been done that's wrong. We know that we need to fix it. We, we try different things. Maybe you try and scrub yourself clean, have, have a shower, compensate in some way. But this says that what our actions do makes us unholy before God. God is concerned about it. And atonement needs to be made between us and God. And when it's made, the result is forgiveness. Is that whatever was against us, whatever guilt we held, is taken away. We're now clean. And this this picture of clean, unclean resonates with you, doesn't it? It's sort of what happens even in... Um, Shakespeare's plays. What do you do when you're guilty? You try and wash yourself. You wash your hands. You have a shower. Because there's an overlap in the feelings between an unclean conscience and an unclean person, body. Now, that's what they do. I suspect even as you listen to that, you can understand the meaning of it, can't you? But let's spell out some of the obvious conclusions. The first is that sin brings guilt, and guilt brings a penalty. Sin creates guilt. We are guilty of what we've done wrong, and guilt requires a payment to make it right. Chapter 6, verse 4, notice the way it's described. When they sin in any of these ways and realise their guilt, notice there's a gap. You sin, and that makes you guilty. You are guilty, objectively guilty. And then sometime later, you realise it, you feel it. Subjectively, your conscience bugs you. You know what you've done is guilty. You're guilty of it. So the objective, subjective. But notice the language is the language of guilt. The primary category God is concerned about is guilt. Now, if you're aware of any cultural studies, maybe you've done some anthropology or reading in that area, You might be aware that people talk in different categories about the way we experience the effect of good and evil. Some cultures especially think in terms of honour and shame. When you've done something wrong, the problem is not guilt, the problem is shame. It's what other people think of you. That's very, very prominent in, in, say, Japanese society, where if if you shame yourself and your family, you often have no uh, um, uh, alternative but to end your life, to somehow try and make up for that shame. Some other cultures are power and fear or pain and pleasure. But this tells us that God primarily works in the guilt-innocence quarter. 
Now, the others are all true. You'll find them in the Bible. But this tells us the thing that matters most before God is guilt. That before him, what we've done makes us guilty. Objectively guilty before God. You may feel it or you may not feel it. You may be more a person who who finds shame much more difficult. But this is saying God finds the guilt more difficult. That's the thing that really disturbs him. And I think it's true, the commentators tell us, that our culture is moving from a sort of guilt-innocence framework much more to the shame-honour thing. So to cancel someone on social media is shameful. And that's where we've moved. And one of the difficult things about shame is you can't do anything about it. But God provides a way of doing something about guilt. You may feel no shame, no fear, no pain, and no guilt. But we are all guilty. And that matters to God, our creator. You may be brought up in this shame honour culture, and you feel shame really deeply, but you don't think that guilt matters. God says that guilt is your most pressing concern, your most pressing problem, my most pressing problem. That's the thing that God needs us to deal with. Secondly, uh, we see that guilt can be moved by transfer and substitution. When you've sinned, what do you do? You bring your animal. The first thing you do is you lay your hands on the head of the animal. And what are you doing? Well, in chapter 16, we're told that laying your hands on the head, with that comes confession of your sins and rebellion. That is, in effect, what you're doing is transferring your guilt onto the animal by laying your hands on its head. And then the animal is executed. It dies because the penalty for sin is death. There's not a few lashes across the back. It's not a withdrawal of privileges so you miss a a meal tonight. It's death. The animal is slaughtered, but even more than that, you slaughter the animal. You do it yourself. You get the knife out and kill it. And you know that that's your death, that it's dying. It's taken your place. You now only live because the animal dies. Thirdly, there's the blood. And the life. In chapter 17 of Leviticus, uh, God says this, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you, that is the blood, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, don't eat blood. That is, blood is this symbol that makes sense, doesn't it? That if you execute an animal like that, you slit its throat, then the blood just spills out, it pumps out. And as it pumps out, the animal dies. It's not a symbol of life. It's a symbol of life um, poured out. It's a symbol of death by, by judicial execution. And as you cut the throat of the animal, your animal, your sacrifice, and you saw the blood all coming out, and as the priest takes it and sprinkles it on the altar and pours it on the base of the altar, it just tells you again and again, That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the animal dying, there is no atonement. Without the penalty being paid, your guilt remains. And if your guilt remains, God cannot dwell with you. You cannot be in relationship with a holy God. 
And Israelites were to do this every time they sinned, including their unintentional sin. Now, I would stop and think, what would that mean for you this week if you had to do this? I presume you'd have to sacrifice at least one, well, three, five animals, wouldn't you? Just this week, if that's the system that you lived under. Have you got the message? Your sin defiles you before God. Your sin must be atoned for. That might be an idea that you find difficult to accept. You, you might be resistant to it. But you know you're not perfect, don't you, if you're honest with yourself. But you may not know how seriously God takes it. The fourth stage of it is, that, is to understand that these sacrifices and the whole system is provided by God. It wasn't something they made up. The Israelites didn't get together and say, wonder what we can do to sort of not feel so guilty. No, God gave them all the instructions. He gave them the whole method of providing atonement. He set out how to do it, and he guaranteed the effectiveness of it. And on top of that, in the end, ultimately, he's provided the animals that they sacrificed, the bulls, the goats, the sheep. They were part of the covenant blessing that God promised Israel. They've got them, they've multiplied, they've got enough to offer sacrifices because God has multiplied them and given the pastures. It's been part of God's blessing to them. And so this method of sacrifice is God's provision, it's God's mind, it's idea from beginning to end. Now some people might object and say, hold on a minute, isn't sacrifice sort of pretty common with these religions from, from that world, from the primitive world? Um, maybe Israel just pinched these ideas from their surrounding cultures. It was just a human invention. And there is some truth in it. It is true that sacrifices were common to almost all religions in that world. Ancient Egypt, Baal worshippers, the Aztecs even in, in South America and Central America. But there are some striking differences between Leviticus and those sacrifices. Those sacrifices were always transactional. In the sense that we wanted God to do something for us, the gods, whatever gods we believed in. We decided what we would do to try and get the gods to give it to us. That's certainly how the Baal worship worked. We wanted some rain. Well, maybe Baal wants a goat today. Let, let's sacrifice a goat. That hasn't worked. Let's put three more goats on. Well, let's get a bull as well. We, we do whatever we, we think might make God change his mind. That's not what this is like at all. Secondly, most of those sacrifices involved human sacrifices. And God forbids that completely. Uh, we know that in, uh, in, 18, uh, sorry, in 1487, the Aztecs sacrificed more than 80,000 men uh, on one day. They killed more than 80,000 people to dedicate a new temple to one of their gods. That is abhorrent to the true and living God. And uh, uh, human sacrifices are not what he wants. Thirdly, in those sacrifices, there's no understanding of substitution, that an animal dies in our place. But that is central to these sacrifices. The purpose here is very different. Now, th this was God's idea. It was not a human invention. So the question we started with is it possible for guilty humans 
to live with the holy God, to approach a holy God, to have a holy God dwell in our midst. And Leviticus says, not unless you follow the instructions, not unless a substitute dies, not unless atonement is made. And Leviticus gives us all the instructions, gave Israel God's generous provision so that he could dwell in the midst of his people. But when we come to the New Testament, we discover something a little bit unsettling. We find out that it was all a failure. This is what Hebrews says. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, for those offerings that made the sacrifices, to take away sin. And if you stop and think about it, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? How could an animal, just an animal dying, sort of be the same as me? How could it substitute, be a substitute for me? Because I'm a human, I'm not an animal. I'm worth more than an animal. And the animal didn't choose to die, it just got roped in. It wasn't a willing, it wasn't a, a moral decision it made. And so how can that take away my sin? Well, further on, uh, Hebrews, to spell that a bit more, uh, it talks about the sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. That is, they did it once, they did it again, they had to do it again, the next day, the next day. It, it never actually worked and made them clean in any permanent sense. It just kept reminding them that it didn't work properly. Or in chapter 9, verse 13 of, of Hebrews, it reminds us that those, the sprinkling of blood and the washings and all that sort of stuff only affect the external. But how can they change me internally? How can they cleanse my conscience from sin? No, they didn't work. They were ineffective. They had to be repeated again and again because they didn't work. But what's going on? Is Leviticus a giant mistake? Is it sort of God later saying, whoops, I hope that would work, but it doesn't work? No, what we find out is it was a deliberate failure. It was meant to fail. It never worked. It was never meant to work. Now, that idea of a deliberate failure is a bit strange to us because success is so hard, you can't imagine ever deliberately failing, can you? Have you ever deliberately failed an exam? He's nodding. You have? Can you tell us why? Sorry, that's putting you on the spot, isn't it? No particular interest in the topic. Okay, I'm out of here. I don't want to, don't want to do this subject ever again. Yeah, I'll fail. It, but it, it's not normally what we do. Uh, although, I tried to think of some examples. Here's one. It might make a bit of sense. Earlier this year, SpaceX Starship, you know, SpaceX, Elon Musk, um, their biggest rocket they've ever created, trial uh, launch, and within two minutes of launch, it just blew to pieces. It didn't separate the first from the second stage. All fell apart. Um, it, it, was a, it was a failure. But they called it a success. Uh, this is actually to quote one of their executives. It's important to fail so that you have a greater chance of succeeding. That's sort of right, isn't it? That is, they learnt things, they learnt what it takes to succeed by failure. But I don't think God needed to learn what it takes to succeed by failing. Uh, somebody mentioned iPhones to me. They're designed to fail, aren't they? Three years later, <laughs> planned obsolescence. Uh, you can't update them anymore. Uh, your apps don't work anymore. You've got to upgrade to something newer, don't you? Um, this was the one I thought probably fitted the bill best. You know what those are, don't you? They're tools, but they're tools designed to fail. 
If you got one of those saws and you tried to saw a piece of wood, it's not going to work, is it? You won't be able to cut the piece of wood. You get the, there isn't a hammer there, but you know, the, the rubber hammers and you, you try to hammer a nail in, it just won't hammer the nail in. And it won't hurt your thumb. And that's part of the reason. So, so what's the value of it? Well, the value is that it doesn't work, but it educates you so when you get the actual thing that works, you know how to use it properly. And that's what Leviticus is. It's a deliberate failure so that when the real thing comes, we've been educated. We know God's culture. We know what it takes to make atonement for sin. We know that guilt really matters. And Jesus comes, who is the fulfilment. So Hebrews says this, those, the law, all this Leviticus stuff, is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The reality that it points to is Jesus. Because when Jesus came, he is the substitute that's effective. It's not an animal anymore, but it's the son of God made human. He can substitute himself for me, and not just me, but you and you and you and you and you, all, all of us. It fits. He's unblemished, completely unblemished by any sin. He's completely innocent. And he died. He was executed as a criminal. And so the language that the New Testament uses, his blood atones for our sin. It even cleanses our consciences. If the blood of bulls and animals can only externally make me clean, the blood of Jesus, who offered himself through the eternal spirit, unblemished to God, cleanses our consciences, our subjective feelings from acts that lead to death. Jesus' sacrifice works brilliantly. And Leviticus helps us understand and embrace it. This is how unholy people can live. Now, we've just scratched the surface today. Please come to NYC because we're going to explore this in a whole lot more detail and more wonder. You'll see so much more of it and its brilliance. But the question now for you is this and for me. Have you laid your sin? On Christ? Have you transferred your guilt to Christ? Or do you think it's not a problem? Do you think there's nothing to see here? No, there's no real guilt. I, I, I'm okay. Leviticus, as a book, tells us your guilt is actually the problem. It's your biggest problem. You've got lots of problems, haven't you? You've got an assignment due tomorrow, well, today. That person uh, that you really like hasn't talked to you for three weeks. Uh, you've got a job that you need to, to, to go and do or, or maybe find a job because you're running out of money. Your parents have, uh, maybe are, are about to split up. and get. You've got huge problems, haven't you? All of life will, will throw up problems. But Leviticus says this is your hugest problem. Your guilt before the true and living God, before your creator. And this is a problem you cannot solve. You cannot. You can't do anything about it yourself. You're not clever enough. You're not rich enough. You're not, well, it doesn't matter how clever you are, you can't. It doesn't matter how much money you've got, you can't solve this. It doesn't matter how religious you are, you can't do it. But God has provided his solution, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. That is your only hope. That is your certain hope. 
Is that your actual 